Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Monday, March 22nd, 2021, coming up on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Democrats and Republicans clash today over efforts to make Washington, D.C. the 51st state. Samaria Rice, the mother of Tamir Rice, is calling for Tamika Mallory, Ben Crump, and others to step down from their involvement in fighting for the liberation of black people. We'll explain and also hear Tamika's response. Black leaders in Miami are slamming the SWAT tactics of police this weekend as they broke up massive spring break crowds on Miami Beach. And Kay James, the president, the first black president of the Conservative Heritage Foundation, announced today that she is resigning. We'll tell you why. It turns out that the Teen Vogue employee who helped oust Alexi McCammon has some inward tweets of her own. She's now made her Twitter page private. I wonder why. We'll also discuss equity in black maternal health. And plus, show you today's crazy-ass white woman, Subway Karen. Plus, we remember L.A. Lakers Hall of Famer. First of all, Elgin Baylor, who passed away today at the age of 86. It is time to bring the funk 
and Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. long been time that Washington, D.C. became the nation's 51st state, and today that was a congressional hearing addressing that very issue. And it also led to a clash between Republicans and Democrats during the House Oversight and Reform Committee. Of course, the D.C. Admission Act, which was introduced in January in the House by Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton, a Democrat who represents D.C., and in the Senate by Democrat Tom Carper of Delaware. Democrats argued on Monday that Washingtonians are treated as second-class citizens performing the responsibilities of citizens but not receiving representation in Congress in return. Republicans oppose the effort, claiming the legislation violates the Constitution. Listen to the back and forth. Y'all check this out. I am Muriel Bowser. I am mayor of Washington, D.C., and I'm honored to come before this committee to ask this Congress to right the wrong that happened 220 years ago when the residents of the District of Columbia were stripped of their full congressional representation. Two years ago in the 116th, I came before this committee under the leadership of the late Elijah Cummings to dispel erroneous arguments against DC statehood. These are bad faith arguments, and I'm sure we will hear them time and time again this morning. They say Washington DC statehood is unconstitutional, even though constitutional experts have refuted this claim. Article one of the constitution is not an obstacle. As HR 51 makes clear, a federal district will remain for the federal government, its buildings and its workings. And the rest of the area where people live will become the 51st state. They say Washington DC is too small, our economy is not diverse enough, even though we're bigger by population than two states and pay more per capita than any state. We pay more in total federal taxes than 22 states. They say Washington DC can't take care of itself. This is simply not accurate. In fact, by many objective measures, DC is a better governed jurisdiction than most states. We have balanced our budgets for 25 times in the last 25 years. And we already operate as a state and perform the same functions as states do. During the coronavirus pandemic, for example, we have led COVID-19 testing, contract, contact tracing, and vaccination efforts, just as states do. And we are treated like a state in more than 500 citations in federal law. Again, two years ago, we debunked those claims as thinly veiled attacks on our political leanings and quite frankly, on our diversity. 
and history of black political power. Today, I come to urge this committee and this Congress to move beyond the tired, non-factual, and frankly, anti-democratic rhetoric and extend full democracy to the residents of the District of Columbia as the founding fathers saved for a later day. I was born in Washington, D.C., and generations of my family, through no choice of our own, have been denied the fundamental right promised to all Americans, the right to full representation in Congress. The simple fact is denying American citizens a vote in the body that taxes them goes against the founding principles of this great nation. The disenfranchisement of Washingtonians is one of the remaining glaring civil rights and voting rights issues of our time. Even as the Constitution was being drafted, several members foresaw this situation that Washingtonians face today, a capital city of second-class citizens. When white residents were the only population to be affected, as they were the only ones with suffrage at the time, the Founding Fathers pledged to correct the wrong, and the Continental Congress was either eager to offer amendments to correct it. But ultimately, the Constitution did not resolve the concerns around the future of federal districts, congressional representation, or self-governance. Why did the motivation to right the wrong disappear? As time passed, the district became majority African-American. The drive to correct the wrong was replaced by racist efforts to subvert a growing and thriving black city. Historic records abound with statements of successive members of Congress referencing the Negro problem or the color problem within DC as a justification to withhold congressional representation. This was their way of saying African-Americans are unable to govern themselves or vote for their best interest, or I dare say, be the face of the nation's capital. Surely, in 2020, this body cannot associate themselves with that view. Next month, we will celebrate President Lincoln signing the Emancipation Act that freed the slaves in the District of Columbia, April 16, 1862, months before the Emancipation Proclamation freed other enslaved people in our country. I hope to remind this Congress that district residents are still not free as we remain disenfranchised by this body. I urge all of you to do what over 260 two centuries of lawmakers have failed to correct and grant full democracy to D.C. residents through statehood. We have proven our sound leadership, and there is no reason for this Congress not to right this wrong. Zach Smith, uh, conservative with the Heritage Foundation, uh, this, is, this is what he actually said in today's hearing, y'all. Framers also wanted to avoid one state having undue influence over the federal government. There's no question that D.C. residents already impact the national debate. For the members here today, how many of you saw D.C. statehood yard signs or bumper stickers or banners on your way to this hearing today? I certainly did. Where else in the nation could some, such simple actions 
reached so many members of Congress. Framers also wanted to avoid one Yeah, that's, that's such just a nonsensical argument uh, that, ooh, yard signs. But uh, during uh, his testimony, uh, Smith also uh, got something wrong and he had to be checked by Baltimore Congressman Kwasi Mfume. Yeah, watch this. Mr. Smith, you are naming a number of significant people uh, elected and appointed who were opposed to statehood. Uh, and you mentioned uh, the former Congressman Fontroy. Uh, what was his opposition? Do you know? I, I do, Congressman. Uh, Delegate Fontroy was advocating for other voting rights legislation for district residents, uh, but he was saying that he he wanted to be clear with other members of Congress that he was not advocating for D.C. statehood uh, because, in his well, words, that would be in direct defiance of the prescriptions. Of I'm going to reclaim my time on that, Mr. Harris. Uh, I'm not trying to figure out where Mr. Farnsworth was in the 1970s, but rather where he was all along since then. And he was a big, strong advocate of D.C. statehood. In fact, we took a train, he and I, and a number of um, members of the Congress from New York back down to Washington with each stop having a rally for D.C. statehood. So I think you probably want to check your facts on that because Walter Fontroy was not against statehood. Now, Isn't it interesting when you start correcting the facts here? Uh, folks, uh, here's the real deal. Republicans simply oppose D.C. statehood because they don't want to see two black United States senators. They don't want to see two black Democrat United States senators. Now, look, this is real simple. If you really believed in D.C. statehood or if you believed in democracy, how can you say we're just going to just blow off and screw over uh, individuals uh, who, uh, who live in this particular state? It just kind of makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, it, to listen to uh, any of what Republicans had to say on this, um, it's, it's nuts. You also had Rashida Tlaib, uh, who spoke on this very issue, and this is what she had to say uh, in today's hearing. Partnership and leadership of Congresswoman Norton on our committee for constantly bringing this to our attention. Um, I think it's important to note that D.C. statehood should not be a partisan issue. I know that's what you hear here. I think the messaging uh, on the part of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle would be different if it was a, a predominantly Republican district. I mean, we, we truly are literally talking about democracy versus, all, uh, you know, being able not to have democratic um, uh, access to making sure that you are represented at all levels of government. And we also can't claim to support self-determination and democracy and oppose D.C. statehood. It's that simple. So since my friends across the aisle love to talk about taxation, local control, and federal overreach whenever it happens in their states, I'd like to focus on these topics as they, they impact the D.C. residents. Congress has always... That was, again, Rashida Tlaib, uh, who was speaking today uh, on D.C. statehood. It, w when you listen to uh, a lot of the, the craziness coming from... Uh, Republicans uh, on this issue. Um, there was almost a deal a few years ago uh, to actually uh, get D.C. statehood, but then uh, it failed as well. Uh, let's go to our uh, panel who joins us right now, uh, Dr. Ava Jones-DeWeaver, political analyst, Dr. Julian Malvo, economist, President Emerita Bennett College. Later, we'll be joined by Eugene Craig, CEO, Eugene Craig Organization. I'll start with you, uh, Julian. Look, we know exactly why Republicans do not want D.C. to be a state. 
<laughs> Absolutely, Roland. I, I think that if the population continues to tilt, you know, it used to be Chocolate City, now it's Chocolate Chip. Um, you know, when the chips get smaller, I think they'll be much more interested in D.C. statehood. They do not want two black members of Congress, uh, two black senators. Uh, what they want is to close our access. Congresswoman Norton, high props for continuing to raise this issue. I found it so disingenuous. I'm so grateful that Kwasi Fume checked that man. I forgot his name already. But checked that man who tried to say that Fauntroy was not in favor of statehood. If you go back and look at the congressional record, he spoke out on it on the floor of Congress I don't know how many times. Uh, he sang about it once, actually, talking about set us free. So these folks will manipulate facts, but we know what part they are. They don't believe in facts. Manipulate facts to essentially sideline the voices of 700,000 people, 700,000 people who live in this District of Columbia. It's wrong. It's big wrong. And hopefully this administration will support Congresswoman Norton and others in making sure that D.C. has the kind of representation that we deserve. Avis. Absolutely. I mean, really what's happening here is that uh, you have a Republican Party that above all else wants to hold on to power. And they know that uh, if D.C. becomes a state, then that essentially is providing two more Democratic centers, senators uh, to, the, to the Democratic Party, uh, which will make it that much more difficult uh, for the Republicans uh, to be able to get back in power and maintain power. And so the last thing that they want to do uh, is to put themselves at a, a disadvantage by granting D.C. statehood, even though, to be perfectly honest, obviously, morally, it's the right thing to do. When you have people who are disproportionately paying taxes, paying taxes more than many states in the United States, uh, to the federal coffers, uh, yet they still don't have representation in Congress that can actually sort of vote on, on their key issues, um, it, it, is, it is wrong and it needs to be corrected. Look, y'all, uh, bottom line is this here. Uh, Democrats, they got to show some guts. They got to make a decision whether they're going to actually uh, get serious about this. And the question is, will they? Uh, bottom line is, uh, it is due. D.C. Uh, should be the 51st state. Nothing precludes uh, folks from doing it. They just simply have the uh, guts to actually do it. Not quite sure uh, they'll do so. Uh, but we also, um, you know, uh, need to see some action on this. Uh, you've had President Bill Clinton, President Barack Obama, now you got President Joe Biden. Uh, and so this needs to be also pushed from the White House. And so uh, let's see exactly what happens. Let's go to, go to my next story, folks, here. Uh, that's gotten lots of attention the last several days. Uh, Samaria Rice, the mother of Tamir Rice and Lisa Simpson, the mother of Richard Reicher, uh, who was shot and killed in Los Angeles, are calling for Tamika Mallory, Ben Crump, and a number of others to step down from their involvement in activism in fighting for black people. Now, a statement was released by uh, Samira Rice, and she made some posts last week on Facebook uh, blasting uh, Tamika and others um, uh, really criticizing them uh, for their uh, work. Uh, that's, that's led to uh, lots of conversation back and forth uh, from a lot of people. And I really thought it's important for us to really 
walk through this and break this down because I've seen uh, a lot of comments on social media. I've seen people uh, going back and forth. No, go back to the statement, please. I've seen people going back and forth. And so I, I want to break this down. So this is the statement here. The official statement from Samaria Rice, Mother Tamir Rice and Lisa Simpson. Tamika D. Mallory, Sean King, Benjamin Crump, Lee Merritt, Patrice Cullors, Melina Abdullah, and the Black Lives Matter Global Network need to step down, stand back, and stop monopolizing and capitalizing our fight for justice and human rights. We never hired them to be representatives in the fight for justice for our dead loved ones murdered by the police. The activists have events in our cities and have not given us anything substantial for using our loved ones' images and names on their flyers. The attorneys in our fight are also misleading the impacted families. In the case of Tamir Rice, it was even questionable as to whether Benjamin Crump knew the laws in depth in the state of Ohio. I fired him six to eight months into Tamir's case. We don't want or need y'all parading in the streets, accumulating donations, platforms, movie deals, etc., off the death of our loved ones, while the families and communities are left clueless and broken. Don't say our loved ones' names, period. That's our truth. Now, that is the... Um, statement okay now so i was on um twitter and and, and the mother of uh, uh lisa simpson she actually uh posted uh, a variety of tweets um on this very issue that uh that are important that are important because what she is saying is that uh they need to be um, pay. They posted this tweet right here. Update from Samaria Rice. This was at uh, 134 today. I've been I've been contacted by the following people. Patrice Cullors, Sean King, and Tamika Mallory. Me and my team will, 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 be, will be preparing an official response. Thank you to everyone who has joined me and Lisa Simpson in fighting for our sons. Okay? So that was a tweet uh, that they actually sent out uh, today uh, on this very issue. Um... The other thing is when you begin to break down what was uh, what was stated, because Samaria Rice um, was really upset when Tamika Mallory was on the Grammys, um, when she uh, spoke on that particular program. And it was uh, doing a performance uh, by the um, baby. Now, I'm going to walk through this and I'm going to show you several things. Because I think it's important as we uh, talk about this that we really um, properly walk through it so people understand what was said, what was done, and really what is involved. I know, I know Tamika very well. What was interesting about this is that Tamika wasn't involved in the case with Tamir Rice. Tamika didn't travel to Cleveland wasn't out there uh, doing anything uh, with regards to that case. But, but this was the performance that really angered Samira Rice. Watch this. Uh, not sure why we're not getting any sound. Um, all right, guys, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll figure that out. Uh, but I know it's kicking out sound here. Um, so she speaks at the Grammys. They can't come up with a statement saying you've raised money off of Tamir Rice. Tamika did a podcast where she broke that down. 
So here, we understand the pain and the agony of both of these mothers who've lost sons. But when they call on all the folks they mentioned to step down from the movement, no disrespect to Lisa Simpson or Samaria Rice, but they don't speak for all of the families who've actually lost, lost loved ones. They only speak for themselves. To, earlier, Jamika posted on her Instagram page, she posted a statement from the family of Breonna Taylor. And what, remember, uh, they were in uh, Until Freedom, the group that Tamika works for. They spent a significant amount of time in Louisville fighting on behalf of Breonna Taylor. This was the post. The family of Breonna Taylor fully supports and stands with Tamika D. Mallory and Until Freedom, just as they have with us. If you scroll through the comments, uh, there was uh, Sabrina Fulton, Trayvon Martin's mother. Tamika, I'm still with you because you are still with me. Hashtag say her name, Trayvon Martin. Uh, there was, and I'm looking for uh, the comment I saw it earlier. Uh, th there was uh, another family member who said that since, um, since their child had been shot and killed, Tamika had consistently talked to and communicated with the family. And so as we begin to unpack this, you have this emerging narrative where people are saying, y'all stole all this money. Now, a lot of this tension has been made public when Black Lives Matter announced that they had raised $90 million. A lot of this tension is a result of lots of back and forth uh, on, this, uh, on the issue. What's interesting about this is that the NAACP has actually received more money than Black Lives Matter Network since the death of George Floyd. Is anyone asking the NAACP to step down? Is anyone asking the NAACP they should not be fighting and speaking on behalf of communities and social justice? Why not? What's interesting here is that Samir Rice talks about Ben Crump. Let, let me explain to y'all, and I don't have to defend Ben Crump. I'm only explaining to you what works. Let me be real clear. What works. When you are hired as a lawyer, you're out of state. You have to partner with local counsel. We've seen this happen. We've seen this in Minneapolis. We've seen other cases. We've seen this in Dallas. I mean, we can go on and on and on. That's what a Ben Crump will do. If there's a case in Georgia, they will partner with attorneys that are in Georgia. 
If it happens in Ohio, they will partner with attorneys there in Ohio. Typically, families hire folks like Ben Crump to actually bring attention to their case. That's why they get hired. That's how, that's how this works. This is no different than when Johnny Cochran was alive. Johnny Cochran was hired. Families could have easily hired a local attorney. But they brought in Johnny Cochran because Johnny Cochran brings in cameras. To the idiots who are on YouTube saying, I'm always speaking for Ben Crump, y'all can go to hell. I don't always speak for Ben Crump. I'm telling you how it works. I'm telling you that whether you hire a white attorney, a black attorney, doesn't matter. If an attorney is licensed in Florida and you hire them, there is a legal process they must go through to work on a case. That has nothing to do with one or the other. See, the issue here is not, oh, you're defending Black Lives Matter. No, the problem is there are far too many of you on Twitter, on Instagram, on Snapchat, on YouTube, who, who comment on stuff and you don't know any facts. Tamika Mallory wasn't in Cleveland protesting during the, during the Tamir Rice case. If Samaria Rice is saying, don't mention my son's name, okay. Don't get mentioned. Don't be surprised if no one mentions your, what happened to your son and the case, if folks forget about it. Y'all, we, we, we can literally walk through all of this. Do y'all understand when we cover the 20th anniversary of the Million Man March? There were numbers of families out there who were not on stage. Not every family story gets picked up. Not every family is going to be on national television. Not every settlement is going to be as large as the next one. I want to read... I want to read through a series of tweets. Just give me a second. Because
because I, 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 I think I think this is vital because we're being a walkthrough. And also, um, this is also what happens when people tweet stuff and lie. So, uh, peaceful underscore rule on Twitter, you're lying ass when you just tweeted one minute ago. Roland Martin is making an argument in favor of Tamika Mallory, Ben Crump, and Sean King, claiming the tension with Samaria Rice and Lisa Simpson is over $90 million raised by, by BLM. This is also reductive and actually not what Samaria said. You are a liar. And I'm going to call you a liar because you lied in one minute ago. I am fully unpacking what is going on here. You are a liar. So please don't lie. Tell folk exactly what I'm laying out. What I am laying out is that, and I've been covering this, I have been covering the tension that has existed inside of the Black Lives Matter movement. We've had critics on. We've had Patrice Cullors on. What I am saying is, since the $90 million announcement was made, you've had Mike Brown and activists in Ferguson protesting, saying they should send 20 million of that to Ferguson. So see, don't lie and tell a partial thing of what we're doing. And everyone you mentioned, I didn't all mention. Let's just be real clear. So if you're going to open your mouth and say some things, then what you really need to do is speak truthfully. And the reason this is important is because there are people who have committed themselves to social justice and do understand ain't no 401k programs in social justice. It's not. There are people who are out there getting COVID, on the streets, getting arrested, raising awareness, doing all of those things when it comes to many of these cases. See, I'm going to deal in facts. And, and the reason I am going to deal in facts is because I need our people Discussing this not from a factless position, but a fact based position. Tamika Mallory is not the only activist in America. She's not. Until Freedom, the group she co founded, is one organization. They are not tied to the Black Lives Matter Global Network. The New York Justice League, 
I've had them on. They are not tied. Do all of these folks know each other? Yes. First and foremost, the phrase Black Lives Matter is a phrase. The problem is people, people group all of the black activists together all under the umbrella of Black Lives Matter. That's simply not the case. So do you group the National Urban League under there? See, if we're going to talk about people raising money and collecting money, I see the critics, all oh, these folk raising money off of black pain, black death. Let's put it all on the table. Who else has raised money? NAACP, National Urban League, NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, a plethora of local organizations. So, so uh, uh, what are we saying? If there's an organization that is in Charlotte, and, and they are trying to change the laws to deal with police reform. Are we saying that when they give a speech, they cannot bring up certain cases? Okay. Fine. Done. Are we saying that they cannot have someone like this on a shirt? That's no problem. Okay, that's fine. I do believe, it, believe it's problematic. When we say, oh, y'all got to step down. Well, first of all, how do you tell someone to step down from an organization that they founded? I got somebody trying to tell me, yeah, I, I see it all. Some so-called truth seeker. Roland, I lost respect for you in this one. You can't even understand why Mrs. Rice felt that way, watching that Grammy performance, turning this movement into some corporate sponsor performance. Well, that's nonsensical. See, let me unpack. You can't complain about corporate dollars when you're asking for corporate dollars. I, I, I'm, just trying, I'm just trying to understand here What are we actually talking about? What exactly is the real thing we're talking about? 
I, I'm, I'm looking for the... Because, because I, 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 think it, I think this is important. Because I think that... that and, I, and I've been watching this, and I've just been seeing way too many black people like really caught up in all of this stuff and not really unpacking this thing. Perfect example. I see this tweet about Tamika Mallory simultaneously capitalizing off of their grief. We saw that with Brianna Khan. How was Tamika Mallory? Ca- see, let me just go. Y'all, this is the criticism I just showed you. Go ahead and show it. So they're criticizing this Brianna Khan days of action Brie barbecue. Y'all, they did this with the Brianna family. They were literally passing out food to the community. So are we upset with the name or with what they did? Are we upset with the name Brianna Khan? Days of action, or are we upset with the work? And now are we mad with the folk who do the work? I'm just trying to understand the work that was done. Y'all don't remember that if you don't think the protests in Louisville every single day putting pressure on the city, if you don't think that did not play a role in the settlement for the family of Breonna Taylor that went beyond money, I don't know what planet you're living on. How did that protest happen? How do you pay for the billboards? How do you pay for the permits? How do you pay to bail people out of jail who are protesting? How? How can you have a movement if we are asking the people to lead the movement for free?
See, when we lump everybody together, Tamika Mallory is with Untel Freedom. Sean King is Sean King. Ben Crump is Ben Crump. Black Lives Matter Global Movement is the Black Lives Matter Global Movement. These are separate entities. Do folks cross-pollinate? Yes. Do they talk? Yes. Do they share? Yes. Well, hell, so does the NAACP, the Urban League, and everybody else. How are lawsuits filed? What, what, what do we do here? How do, how do folks begin to do this? See, again, we, we, we can go through this And it's important that we do. So what are we saying here? Are, are, are we saying that we're mad? That a Tamika Mallory, see, let me just really, are we saying that a Tamika Mallory, how dare you speak about social justice during the Grammys? When that presentation reached millions of people, otherwise you wouldn't reach them. Roll it. People, it's time we stand. It's time we demand the freedom that this land promises. President Biden, we demand justice, equity, policy, and everything else that freedom encompasses. And to accomplish this, we don't need allies. We need accomplices. It's bigger than black and white. That's what we mad about. Th that. The, the reason I believe We are seeing this, and let me, and, and I said from the top, no one can understand the pain of losing a child to police violence, except those who have lost a child to police violence. We have seen too many mothers and fathers lose children to police violence. There is Samaria Rice, there's Lisa Simpson. There's Philando Castile's mama. There's John Crawford Jr. Rakia Boyd's family. Ayanna Jones' family. I mean, I, we can go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. But here's the very basic question that we have to ask ourselves. If you are a black mama and a black daddy 
and your child has been shot by the police and nothing has been done, who are you going to call? Who are you going to call to try to get justice for your child? In the past, Reverend Jackson got the phone call. Reverend Sharpton got the phone call. In the past, Johnny Cochran got the phone call. The NAACP got the phone call. I can go on and on and on. Who are you going to call? Because guess what? And I'm going to go to my panel next after this. What if the Tamika Mallory say, you know what? I'm good. I'm going to go work for a voting rights nonprofit. And I can go get me a nonprofit job paying me $200,000 a year, focusing on voting rights. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on that stuff. I'm going to have a health care, a dental plan, a 401k, and I'm going to let somebody else go out there in the streets doing the work. Kim Brown, this ain't called yelling. It's called speaking. Get your facts right. And if it's too much for you, turn your volume down. Ben Crump could very well say, you know what? I'm going to go work on some corporate law. I, I'm going to go work on some personal injury law. Who going to take up the civil rights cases? How, how can the civil rights lawyers pay their staff? How can they pay their private investigators? How can they pay their court fees? How can they pay? Please, by all means, show me. All I want to know is all of the people who are complaining, I want you to answer a very basic and fundamental question. If there are no black activists to call. If there are no black civil rights lawyers to call, please tell me how you are going to get justice for your child. Go to my panel, Julian, Avis, Eugene, Avis, I'll start with you. How do we deal with this? Because you got folk who are scared. 
I don't want to say nothing. I, I, I don't want. I don't. I don't want to criticize. You know these mothers, and I didn't. But I do believe we got to have an honest discussion here. When 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 allegations are laid out and some stuff ain't true. That truth is vital. So if an allegation is made, you raise money off of my child, you put my child on flyers, you put my child on shirts, stuff like if that stuff ain't true, the record should be corrected. So what do you make of these two mothers saying that Tamika Mallory, Ben Crump, Sean King, Black Lives Matter, Global Movement, they all need to step down from activism in this case? Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, uh, I, you know, truth is absolutely necessary. Um, you know, I can't imagine what it must have felt like uh, to get your 12-year-old, in essence, murdered via drive-by shooting uh, by a police officer who, to this day, is still alive, still fine, not in jail, never really received any substantive, um, any substantive punishment for what happened. Uh, and you have a police department that, to me, has gone out of its way to be especially vile to her. Uh, so I think that that's important to to recognize the context of what she's going through. Absolutely. But I also think that it's important to uh, not lump everyone in the same basket, as you've mentioned. Uh, I, I do think that it is, a, it is a truth that there are some people who have risen to fame um, in the sort of Black Lives Matter movement era uh, and that have been extremely personally successful as a result of that. Um, and one could debate you know, really uh, the degree to which that those successes that have happened subsequent to that, um, you know, the degree to which some of these individuals have really had a long history. A lot, most of them, some of them, a lot of them have not, okay, uh, and have been able to go on and have very successful uh, careers, book deals, and all the movies. She's right about some of that. But, but let's also talk about uh, Tamika. Tamika is someone who's been involved with this work well before the Black Lives Matter movement. She's not a product of the Black Lives Matter movement. She's been in this work, let's be honest, since she was a child. Yes. Her parents... 25 worked, years. Absolutely. Uh, her parents worked in this, uh, in, in the movement, particularly with Nan, and she grew up uh, as an activist, worked within that organization. She has personally had a loved one, and I'm not going to go into great detail because I don't even know if she's been public about it, but she's personally had a loved one murdered by the police prior to the Black Lives Matter movement. So she, she knows this type of pain. She's personally experienced it. And that has been a lot of, I believe, her fire around working in this area of social justice. Yes, her, her activism started when the father of her son was shot and killed. Absolutely. That's where it started. So, Absolutely. yes, Tamika, Tamika Mallory is no different from Sean Bell's widow. Absolutely, absolutely. One I died at the hand of police, one died to sister's gun violence. Go ahead. Absolutely. So the father of her child is dead 
as a result of police violence. Uh, this is something that she has uh, been fighting against for years. Uh, and, and so she knows this from a very personal experience, and as I mentioned, very well before the dawn of the Black Lives Matter movement. As you mentioned, her organization is a distinct and independent organization. It is not a part of the Black Lives Matter network. So the confluence with people sort of mixing all of this stuff together is an unfortunate misunderstanding of the facts. That's just clearly not the case. She was doing this work well before Black Lives Matter. She understands what it's like to have the love of her life murdered by police, the father of her child murdered by the police. And she's been doing this work for decades. So, you know, I think we have to be very careful here about painting with a broad brush and throwing everybody under the bus because we're, we don't know the facts around different situations. It is, it is, it is possible to critique and say about, you know, certain situations, I don't know about where this money is and all this and all that. But let's, when we're being specific and we're calling specific people out, uh, let's also be clear that we know the facts around that person, particularly when we're trying to project onto them things that they've never been involved in. Uh, Julian, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reading here. So these were tweets that uh, Lisa Simpson sent out um, to uh, on March 16th, and, and I, I would love to. I'm going to read them, and I just want to, because I think here these are demands that that they made. Number one, step down from the spotlight of our fights. Do not do any more interviews, make any more T-shirts, or hold any more press conferences or events in the name of our loved ones. Do not use our loved ones to market any events. Number two, Black Lives Matter Los Angeles should pay me. Lisa Simpson, as I am the mother of Richard Risher. They had a press conference for the 49-day encampment when my son, Richard Risher, first got killed. They raised $5,000 for my son's funeral. I never received one penny. There should be accounting there. Was the money paid to the funeral home or paid for the, like, so were expenses paid? Was the money supposed to go to her or did they actually pay for the funeral? Those are legitimate questions that deserve an answer. Number three, financial assistance for the Tamir Rice Foundation from all who have exploited Tamir Rice. Tamika Mallory, Sean King, Benjamin Crump, and Black Lives Matter Global Network. I, Samaria Rice, purchased the building in 2018, and it needs remodeling, operational funds, etc. Housing funds for Lisa Simpson, as I am battling homelessness, homelessness with my current children. My son, Richard Risher, was killed by LAPD, and I was offered no assistance from BLM. I'm currently living in a motel with my children and need funds for housing. Um, and then she put support the Tamir Rice Foundation and make all requested donations there. Send personal donations to the cash apps of Samaria Rice and Lisa Lee. So these are the demands that were made. Julian, your thoughts about that and all we're talking about? I don't mean to laugh. I'm just thinking that they're accusing Sean King, uh, Melina Abdullah, um, being Crump, uh, being grifters. But these demands sound like griftering demands, frankly. And I don't mean any disrespect. I know that these sisters have to be in enormous pain. They must be in enormous pain. They've lost their loved ones. They haven't gotten justice. They believe that other people are exploiting 
their loved ones for their own benefit. But as you said, Roland, in the beginning, where are the facts? Now, I think it's perfectly reasonable to ask the folks in L.A. who raised $5,000, where did the $5,000 go? That's perfectly reasonable. But I think that this dissension, um, how can I put it? I can't put it. Um, but it basically, at some level, gives the melanin deficient opportunities to talk about our movement in deleterious ways. Tamika Mallory, as Ava said, I've known her for a while. Great sister, very rooted in struggle. That she was at the Grammys, frankly, was a victory for social and economic justice for Black people. Uh, but, but Lita Abdullah is a personal friend, founder of the Black Lives Matter movement in L.A., professor at Cal State Los Angeles, again, rooted in struggle. She's not making a penny off this. She, in fact, has often been uh, castigated by her colleagues at the university for her activism. So, you know, as you said, people don't get paid for this. Ben Crump, I don't know what he, you know, of course, he obviously has to eat and has to live, but I don't think he's running around giving these people invoices. So I'm just really, um, I guess the word might be disgusted, but that's a little strong. I'm perplexed by the way this is going. I do think that people should be accountable, but I don't think that this venomous attack on principled activists is at all useful. And when you look at the names they're calling out, these are people who put their bodies on the line, put their reputations on the line, put their spirits on the line. I feel so badly for these women. I really do. But that's not on these activists. I do think if there's a lot of money being raised, perhaps there could be some donation. But I, we don't know that a lot of money is being raised. Uh, we don't know what it's going for, Roland. And so, as you said at the beginning, of your statement, we've got to deal with facts here. And I don't think that anybody in this debacle, and that's what it is, is the debacle, is dealing in fact. Eugene, I, I made clear to Patrice Colors in Black Lives Matter, they got to be transparent and accountable for what they do. I said the exact same thing to Derek Johnson, the NAACP. Let me say it again. The NAACP has raised more, has gotten more money than Black Lives Matter. More. I know for a fact they've gotten in excess of $100 million since George Floyd's death. Mm -hmm. Okay. Are we demanding to see the plan of action from the NAACP? And we should. I know the National Urban League has gotten millions since the death of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. And I think if we go back, before that, a year or two, Eric Garner, Mike Brown, we can probably track even more. All legitimate questions. But when I hear people say, these folks are profiting off our pain, first of all, you need to be specific who you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Because see, Eugene, I remember Eugene. I remember reading stories of Black Lives Matter activists in Boston and other places in 2015 and 2016 
where folks were talking about sleeping on couches because they had gotten evicted and they, were, they, they needed dental work, had no dental plans. And then it began to dawn on many of these activists that they had all of this passion to fight in the streets, but then it hit them. They needed infrastructure because you cannot, and let me say this, for everybody who is watching and listening, you can not have sustained organizations if they are broke. You cannot ask people to give their time and energy and their lives and say to hell with your family, forget that you might have kids. We want you to give. See, if, 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 if folk Eugene gonna really make me go there, How many black people were asking Coretta on April 5th, 1968? How you gonna make it happen with your four kids now that you are a widow? 1967, Dr. King gave the speech at Riverside Church on April 4th, 1967, and the money dried up. The speech is dried up. The only thing that he had when he died was a life insurance policy from the church denomination. And were it not for Harry Belafonte and others who sent the kids to private school, who provided for security, who paid for groceries, Coretta Scott King would have been because her husband gave all to the movement. When he got the Nobel Peace Prize, he gave the money and split it up between the movement. Kept none of it. So I, I, I just want our people to understand that you cannot demand Folk to fight for you pro bono and say, well, somebody else, they're going to pay you. They're going to pay you. Somebody else going to pay your bills. Somebody else going to send your kids to college. Somebody else going to pay your light bill. Eugene, go ahead. <laughs> Look, um, you know, first of all, we, we always start and empathize with the families, right? Um, you know, they have, they have a right to feel the way they feel. They experience stuff that's uh, unique to them. Um, but with that said, um, I think that there's accountability and questions that need to be asked on all sides. Um, the organizations only work when the trust is there. And, and the only way to actually build and sustain trust is through proper transparency. And look, that doesn't necessarily just start or stop with BLM. I think it starts and stops with every organization that's involved in the movement. I think there probably should be some movement accountability project that says, hey, you know, this is what this org is doing. This is what they're funded. This is where the money went, you know, X, Y, and Z. But by the same token, you're 100% correct. You cannot reasonably expect someone to do something for free for you, even if they are doing it for free or giving their time, blood, sweat, effort, and tears um, to fight on your behalf and your cause. Um, you know, for me, you know, I'll be the blunt one here. Um, you know, a lot of this popping up now cries a lot of, um, you know, give me the attention, give me the attention, give me the attention. Why are they getting the attention? 
Um, I mean, look, we all know Tamika Mallory and others have been at this long before this was a formalized movement the way it is right now. Um, you know, they were out there on the front lines. And look, you know, I, I, I said this somewhere else. You have the Sharpton-Jackson, what I like to call the Sharpton-Jackson effect at play here. Um, you know, people want Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton to show up to their cause and um, lend their name to elevate their cause and give them help. But then the second, you know, that, you know, shine, that light shines on an Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, it becomes, oh my gosh, why are they here? You know what I mean? And so, you know, I think, I think, you know, for a lot of this to work, it has to be effective two-way streets and transparency and accountability for everybody. I, I, I got a person on YouTube, Johnny Burton, he said, uh, what about pro bono lawyers? Johnny. <laughs> Johnny. Let me explain something to you, Johnny. A pro bono lawyer means some other clients are footing the bill for him to take your case for free. Some other clients are footing the bill for her to take your case for free. There you go. So, please, I, I don't understand how you think you're going to pay for office space, staff, filing fees, everything that goes with being a lawyer, just, whoo, it's just going to appear. Uh-huh. I, I, I don't. I, I don't. I don't really understand folk not understanding what we're dealing with here. Let me be real clear. I absolutely understand folks making the argument when they say that there are people profiting off of black pain. But you need to be specific in who you're talking to. And if you're going to raise that point, you better have your ducks in a row. You better have your receipts. What you don't do is just throw something out there and then go, oh, it's true. No, 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 no. Cause so, so, so here's the deal. If you are, if you are Lisa Simpson, and if money was raised to pay for your son's funeral expenses, you should be saying, how much did you raise? Where did the money go? Mm-hmm. Show me receipts. That's fair. That that's absolutely fair. But if you want to demand, if you want to demand that um, you know money, you know, go towards the building. Let let let's be. Look, the city of Cleveland paid a six million dollar settlement. In the Tamir Rice lawsuit. Six million dollars. Who did it go to? The settlement wouldn't have been there without the help of the folk of Tamir Kamalari and Ben Crump. You don't get the six million dollar settlement without people out there protesting, pushing. And where did the the money go? You know, Roland, I serve on one of Reverend Jackson's boards. And he... um, as he said, people call him, he shows up. He doesn't ask for money. I mean, he, obviously, the organization Rainbow Push raises money and pays for him and his folks. You know, he needs security. And now that he's been a bit ill, he needs someone to be with him. 
But they don't say to people, I'm not going to come unless you give me X number of dollars. He just shows up. If people happen to help him with the expenses, that's gratitude. And occasionally, some corporate folks have donated a private plane or something like that. But the fact is that folks don't understand how organizations work and what infrastructure looks like and how a, a Reverend Jackson or a Reverend Sharpton um, moves around the country and what it takes for them to do that. And they don't run around giving people invoices. They come because they're called. Again, sometimes people do help. Oftentimes, they don't. And that's all right, because that they're not necessarily pecuniarily motivated. They're just as motivated. And so, I, you know, when you look at this stuff that's on the Internet with these people talking about profiting off of pain, hell, we're all in pain. And the fact is that Tamir Rice, um, all these other young people who've been killed, they represent so many others whose names have not floated to the top, whose names, like Oscar Grant in Oakland, um, didn't get anything, his family didn't get anything, but he is as much a tragedy as Tamir Rice was. And so what I'm fearing about these sisters who are putting this out there is that they don't understand the intersectionality of pain of how every single time a black man, woman, child is killed, we are all going through pain. And that's why so many of us support Tamika, respect and admire Ben Trump, uh, Trump, sorry, Trump, um, you know, appreciate Reverend Jackson for the work that they've done. And I just, you know, it really puts a chill down my spine to see us fighting about pain. The, um... Yeah. And let me be real clear. Uh, I have no problem at all having Lisa Simpson or Samara Rice on this show talking about this year. But what I want our people to do, and let me be real clear, I want our people to operate from facts. There are people who are sending DMs to Tamika with death threats. Bitch, where's the 90 million? She doesn't work for Black Lives Matter Global Network. The life of Tamika Mallory has been consistently threatened because of these allegations. Mm. Let me say it again. The life of Tamika Mallory has been consistently threatened because of these allegations. If we're going to talk about have a family conversation, have it privately. I do believe issues should be addressed. I do believe Mike Brown and the activists in, activists in Ferguson should be talking with the Black Lives Matter Global Network. I, I, I do believe that the other Black Lives Matter chapters should be talking with Patrice Cullors and the Black Lives Matter Global Network to say, hey, how are y'all going to be dispersing funds to chapters? Will it be 500000 per chapter or a million dollars per chapter? How will that be done? Do we have to apply all those different things? There should be a process set up. 
But my last point on this, and I'm, I want to be real clear, and I need everybody to listen to me clearly. Be real careful telling folk to stop being involved in this fight for social justice. Because they might just do it. And when it's time for the next family to call somebody to stand with them, to fight for them, to organize protests on their behalf, the call may go unanswered. And then what will we say? Mm. Because nobody Nobody is obligated to fight on behalf of anybody else. No lawyer, no civil rights lawyer is obligated to take a case. No activist is obligated to fly across the country to stand with families. There are many who do it because they have been called to do so because they care. Oh, let me be real clear. There are those in the game who are in this for the check. Oh, let's not make no mistake. There are those who are in the game for the awards. There are those who are in this movement to be on magazine covers and to get invited to Hollywood parties and panels at the Aspen Institute and to be able to hang with uh, rich white elites. Oh, there are those who are in it for that reason. But you better be specific as to who they are and not paint broad brushes. Going to a break, I'll be back and rolling my unfiltered. Senators, this cannot be our future. Do not concede, Mr. President. Fight hard. This cannot be the future of America. That's all they got! The fuck? Let's go! American patriots start taking down names and kicking ass. message will we send the rest of the world? What happened today in Washington, D.C. is not America, America has stood for some very important things. I think what we've seen in the United States is terribly distressing. Incited by the current president. President Trump. The world is watching and wondering whether we are who we say we are. You were patriots, just like the patriots gathered at Bunker Hill. The election in many ways was stolen. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. 
And at one point, people started chanting, uh, kill him with his own gun. They thought they were going to die. Watching someone use an American flagpole to spear and pummel one of our police officers ruthlessly, mercilessly. We didn't need more witnesses. We needed more senators with spines. President Trump declared his conduct totally appropriate. So, if he gets back into office and it happens again, we'll have no one to blame but ourselves. Hi, I'm Kim Burrell. Hi, I'm Carl Payne. Hey, everybody, this is Sherry Shepard. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. All right, folks, welcome back to the show. There was chaos in Miami Beach this weekend as spring breakers flocked to the city for maskless parties. The police fired pepper balls to disperse crowds after an 8 p.m. curfew went into effect on Saturday. Miami officials said people have flocked to the city because of its relatively few coronavirus restrictions. But some black leaders are questioning whether the police reaction was exaggerated because the partiers were black and brown. Uh, folks, um... Uh, let's go to it. Uh, Eugene, I'll start with you. Uh, look, uh, you saw the video there. Go back to the video, y'all. Uh, go back. Thank you very much. You saw the video there. Uh, first of all, I saw white folks, black folks, a whole bunch of folk uh, partying like it's 1999. <laughs> listen, listen. It is wild down there right now. Um, something like a thousand arrests over the course of spring break at this point. Um, you know, it's black, white, Puerto Rican, Asian. Um, and I'm gonna say this, um, uh, I came out and there were folks standing on top of my car, uh, and my car is now dented, mirrors broken, glass broken. I'm expecting the police to arrest every single person that was involved with it. Um, I mean, you know, there are just, you know, some things that are lawful, some things that are unlawful, some things that are just, you know, completely out of line and that's completely out of line. Um, you know, you know, not to mention that it's a full on panoramic right now. Um, you know, and I, and I don't see too many masks in any of these videos. Um, so the thing is this, um, you know, there are instances of police brutality. There are some instances even in this spring break case where the police, you know, took things probably way too far. Um, but I will say this, um, you can't just go and do whatever you want, especially when you're damaging other people's property or harming other people and not expect a proper response to it. <laughs> Avis? Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I do have to agree with that. I mean, if, if it was my car, I'd be a little pissed off, too, and say, get rid of those folks. But here, here's another thing that we need to understand. Um, we just know in this country uh, that the police are going to treat. This is just reality. The police will treat black people differently than white people. And yes, a, a week ago, when I was seeing footage from Miami, it did look a, a lot of mighty white. It looked mighty white down there in terms of the spring breakers out there acting a fool. Uh, and uh, yes, the, the, the reaction, prob I'm sure, was not as strenuous as it was this time. Um, but I will say the thing that worries me even more is, the, is what Eugene just alluded to a second ago. I didn't see not one mask in that entire footage. And all of those individuals are going to go back to wherever states and cities that they came from 
And we all know that Florida is one of the highest prevalence in terms of one of the more um, dangerous strains of COVID. Uh, we know that black people are three times more likely to get it and twice as likely to die from it. And so it just bothers me that, you know, people have just lost their ever-loving minds and out here <laughs> acting like it's over. It ain't over, folks. It ain't over, okay? And so I'm sorry that, you know, you experienced SWAT tactics, but you should know that you aren't going to be treated with the same sort of kid gloves. It's wrong. It's wrong. But it's real that you're not going to be treated with the same sort of kid gloves as the white kids when they go down there and do stuff. So don't go down there doing crazy stuff, number one. And then number two, don't go down there contributing to a super spreader event and then bring it back to your communities, your mama, your daddy, your neighborhoods, your communities, and kill more black people. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. I found it very hard, honestly, to feel sorry, honestly, for that reason alone. Julian? Well, the differential enforcement is concerning to me, but even more concerning, as Ava says, is the fact that these youngins are down there maskless. Uh, I mean, you know, and they, they're going back home. They're maskless. They're, uh, uh, you know, unfettered. And Eugene, I'm sorry about your car. I'm sure there were a whole bunch of other people's cars that were also um, damaged. People are have COVID fatigue, and they're acting like they don't have good sense. And that's that. At the same time, we do have to look at the differential enforcement of the law and the extent to which African-Americans, although we're more likely to get COVID and more likely to die, we're also more likely to die because of ignorant, out-of-control police officers. So let's just be clear. There's enough ignorance to go around. I wish these black young'uns would not contribute to it. Yeah, it, it was uh, kind of crazy. Uh, and bomb liners, um, of course, they're extending the emergency curfew there uh, in, in Miami Beach. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now, I remember that story last year. That was his uh, white father. Um, he told his son, don't, don't take your ass out of town. The son decided to leave on spring break last year, y'all. Came home. Daddy locked his ass out the house. Daddy said, no, I don't know where the hell you been, and you ain't making me and your mama sick. He said, you got to find somewhere else to live. I'm telling y'all right now, okay? I'm telling y'all right now. I got twin 17-year-old nieces in my house. If any one of my nieces thought they asked could somehow do that kind of crap and come back to the crib, I would lock their asses out the house. Will you at least get them a motel room? Hell no. <laughs> no. Now, let me be real clear. If your ass so damn grown, if your ass so grown that you can make your way to Miami and get your ticket and live with some friends, well, your ass grown enough to figure that shit out when you come back. Amen. <laughs> I agree with that. thousand percent. I ain't, I ain't got no problem with that. No. Oh, hell no. No. uh And look, I'm telling you. So, absolutely. I, I'm with the black leaders down there. Uh, demanding accountability. If you're gonna sit here and use pepper spray and the white and on the black folks and the white folks acting a fool, use it on them too. But I'm telling you right now, the video of these folks out there, I mean massive groups of people uh, in the middle of the street in the middle of a pandemic. Nah, you ain't bringing none of that back to the crib. You're gonna have to figure your you, you take your last on. 
<laughs> I'm just laughing, Roland. I'm so glad I'm not one of your nieces. You damn skippy. Look, Roland, look. Roland is dead serious. No, I'm, a, I'm dead ass serious. Let me tell you what my daddy told me. When your ass get to pay all your bills, all your bills, not half, not 75%, all your bills, then you get to make some grown-ass decisions. Going to spring break in packs of folk, not wearing masks, living together is a grown-ass decision. And you think you're going to come back to my house after being down there? No, I'm telling you right now. Your last go to a homeless shelter, call your little local friends. Y'all can quarantine together. If they parents dumb enough to let y'all come into the house, that's them. But you ain't bring your ass to my house. I'm just straight up. Okay. A homeless shelter. Huh, Roland? I don't give... A hey, guess... Hey, a homeless shelter is called homeless. <laughs> For the next 14 days, your ass will be homeless. <laughs> you got to quarantine somewhere else. I do not care. Because second of all, I ain't got no biological kids. So ain't none of y'all minds. <laughs> so I'm just letting you know. Hello. So you can call me Ben hard all you want to, but you ain't about to have my ass walking around sick and laid out uh, and, and all that kind of nonsense. No, I'm telling you right now, I, I think one of the biggest problems we have today, we got too many punk-ass parents who sitting here, well, my parents didn't let me do some stuff, so I'm going to let my kid do some stuff. See, that's why y'all stupid, too. So that's part, part of the problem. So excuse me if y'all want to say, oh, uh, why, why are you old school? I'm saying, right, call me 100% old school. Guess what? You absolutely right. I will be old school. Ain't nothing wrong with old school. If your ass like vintage clothes, that's old school. Your ass like the Earth, Wind, and Fire and the OJs, that's old school. So it's amazing how we love other stuff that's old school, except when it comes to parenting. Trust me, bring your ass, take your ass on spring break and see what happened. It ain't gonna go well when you come back to the crib. <laughs> yep. You're gonna be old school, I, but you're gonna be breathing. And that's the most important thing. Old school, I said, I'm gonna count on AOL. Just saying. That's just saying. <laughs> Kay James, one of the most prominent black conservative voices in Washington, D.C., has resigned as president of the Heritage Foundation. James took the helm of the think tank after former president Jim DeMint was fired in 2018 after the organization's leadership determined he had veered too far from his conservative principles and too close to Donald Trump. I don't know why we're showing this photo of her. I did an interview with her, so y'all should pull that video up. Thank you very much. She is joined by Executive Vice President Kim Holmes, a three-decade heritage veteran who will also step down. Here's the real deal, Eugene. Uh, there's a civil war that's going on inside the Republican Party. A lot of these conservatives are pissed off with Kay James because she brought on Mike Pence to work for the Heritage Foundation. They want them to be a right-wing, hard-right, Donald Trump, kiss-ass-ass-and-loving think tank, and that ain't Kay James, and that's what was really going on at the Heritage Foundation. Look, look, and Kay James, this is what you get. You get the first black female director of OPM ever in the United States history. You get the first black female to serve as the Department of Health and Human Services of the State of Virginia Secretary. You get one of the first black female regents of a university in Kay Cole James. You get the first black female to lead a large think tank in the world, and that just happens to be the largest think tank in the world. 
Um, look, Kay James is a conservative. She's an old school conservative. Um, she's somebody that's earned her stripes. Um, and look, you know, she's somebody that understands what it means to be black and be conservative and the emphasis on the black, not necessarily the conservative. Um, and so, you know, when she became president of Heritage, it's something we all celebrated. Um, but, you know, she, she walked in with some goals, you know, her and Angela Saylor and others, um, you know, they walked in to achieve some things, you know, open up some doors. You know, Kay's been the epitome of I'm going to open up the door and, and let the rest of the squad in and create the opportunity for them. Um, and that's what Kay did. And she played a very unique role over this last four years. Um, there are some people that are pissed. Um, you know, she will still be a member of the board of uh, directors for the Heritage Foundation that she was uh, before she came president. Um, but, you know, the, the thing is this. Um, when you get a Kay Coach James, you get a Michael Steele, um, you get a J.C. Watts, you better appreciate them. Um, because, you know, um, you know, you don't know when you're going to get another one. Um, and, and, and the role of, of good black Republicans, good black conservatives, is, um, you know, when we get folk that are good, and our emphasis on good and these positions, you got to support them. You got to back them up um, because there will come a day when their tenure will end. And hopefully during that time when they serve, you know, we're able to move the ball forward on some things, specifically creating opportunities for people. The, the Civil War, Julian, the Civil War that we're talking about, is, again, is real. I mean, these, these crazy, crazy Trump people, they don't want anybody around who is not sucking up and kissing his fat ass. They don't want anybody. They want to shut everybody down. Uh, and, and again, uh, you know, they're, they, they, want Mike, they want Mike Pence to suffer. They don't want him... I mean, that's the craziness that you really got going on here. You know, Roland, it's really absurd. Kay James is a wonderful person. I know her. I think she's great. Don't agree with her politics at all, but I think she's great. I think that Heritage probably pushed her into a corner that she had to just get out of. And as you say, they want Mike Pence to suffer. They want anyone who has disagreed with the orange orangutan to suffer. And so they're... I mean, when you look at what they've done at people like uh, Mitt Romney, who is not going to suffer because they love him in Utah. But you look at some of these Republicans who stood up, Lynn Cheney, who stood up and said, this doesn't make any sense. And now these folks are going after them because they basically have independent thinking integrity. I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in the long run. I mean, the Republican Party is morally bankrupt uh, and has failed in integrity. Um, has yielded to idiocy um, that 130 some of them wouldn't even vote that uh, Joe Biden had been properly elected. Uh, that that just this week, some of them said they would not vote to give, um, or last week rather, someone would they would not vote to give congressional medals to the people who defended their behinds because they didn't want to use the word insurrectionists. These people have lost their hot monkey minds. And the question is, are there any Republicans with integrity who want to take their party back? Mm -hmm. Davis? Yeah, you know, I, I, I too know Kay, and I think that she is someone that has integrity and um, someone who is committed to truth, which is unlike where we see the Republican Party going today. When she first took that position, I, to be perfectly honest, I didn't think she would last long. 
Um, I'm aware of the history of the of the Heritage Foundation and what the Heritage Foundation is. One of the I would call it highlights of my career is when the Heritage co- published a piece of, many many years ago and called me a radical flaming feminist. I was like, yes, thank you. Um, but I, I will say that you know he, here is is what we know in terms of what's going on. It had been the case theoretically that the Heritage was supposed to be someplace where the conservative intellectuals went, right? Um, however, now if you're seeing what's going on here with Kay, you're right. What we're seeing here is that this sort of, you know, redneck underbelly uh, of white supremacist, supremacist racists who are the base of the Republican Party are now looking to infiltrate and infect all of those right-leaning institutions, including even the Heritage Foundation, which at one point was the leading sort of Republican think tank, which you would think would be a place where you would have intellectuals gather. Uh, so I, I find that very interesting. And I also find it interesting, uh, dovetail with some reporting today, uh, that's shown that uh, Trump has released a list of quote unquote good Republicans, including potential 2024 presidential candidates. And guess who he left off the list? Mike Pence. And so it, it's very interesting here uh, that you have uh, Kay leading, leaving the Heritage Foundation, because that, to me, suggests that that particular organization is going the way of the rest of the Republican, and it's being sort of sinking down into the sewer with the rest of these liars, these pilfers, and these white nationalist uh, terrorists uh, who are now running the party. Folks, uh, Christine Davin, a senior social media manager at Teen Vogue, is accused of using the N-word in her own past tweets after calling out Alexi McCammon for posts she made when she was 17 years old. Those led to McCammon's resignation last week as the editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue. Davin used the N-word twice on social media more than 10 years ago. The woman who describes herself as being of Irish and Filipino descent allegedly used the word when she sent a tweet to a friend in 2019 identifying him as an N-word. She's also accused of using the term again in 2010. Um, it was very interesting, uh, Eugene, over the weekend when a bunch of these folks at Teen Vogue started locking down their Instagram and Twitter account when folks started looking into their past tweets after they were so vocal against Alexi, who made the comments when she was 17, apologized for them and deleted them in 2019, but they still wanted her head on the platter and they got it. Ooh, ain't it something when your old, when your old stuff come back? It's wild. Um, the thing is this, right? So, if you're under, this is it's kind of wild. So, if you're under the age of 35, Twitter from 08 to about 2013 was a wild, wild, wild wild, wild place. 99% of what happened on Twitter at the time would not fly today. With that being said, and that being the baseline and that being the understanding, when something like what happened to Alexi happens, you either better have your stuff together or just shut the hell up, because chances are you got some problematic tweets yourself. We all had some problematic tweets because Twitter was a wild, wild place. Things like flying maggot cannot be said today. That was what was said back then. Certain views that were held back then and just tossed around cannot be said today because it's a different time. It's a different place. Um, you know, it, it was just a wild place. 
And so when the pylon happens the way Team Vogue did, they should have very well expected that, hey, if you're going to point your gun and fire shots, expect bullets to come right back your way because chances are your ish is just as bad as her ish, if not worse. <laughs> and I say that as somebody that grew up in this era. Avis. I mean, exactly right. Listen, if you're going to have a standard, that standard needs to be uniform. I mean, that's that's the thing. If, if the issue is that this person was clutching her pearls about something that Alexi wrote when she was 17, 17, y'all, 17, okay, which needs to teach any teenagers out there today, just listen, stuff lives forever, okay? But, you know, if, if they're going to be clutching their pearls about that and raising such a funk, uh, that she can't even accept the position, can't even uh, serve one day into the new position for, for which she was hired for, then you need to, if that's the standard, then you need to say anybody else on this staff who has offensive tweets also needs to be gone. I don't understand how it's okay to just allow your staff to privatize their tweets, right? to make everything private now, because that to me is showing that they know there's stuff on there that's offensive. Mm -hmm. so, so you're saying that it's okay for everybody else to do it, but it's not okay for the sister to have done it. Uh, you know, either, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Either they need to um, fire them all, or they need to allow Alexi to serve in that position. And since they've decided to, in essence, push her out, then they need to have, they need to have some transparency at this point and show who else is there who is guilty of the same thing. And at least that now that we know of this particular person, she needs to be gone, period. Julianne. Exactly. I mean, as you say, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. It seems to me that there's always a different standard that's applied to Black people. And this sister, they hired her. They ought to stand by her, but they're not going to do it because it's problematic for them. And then all these other folks have privatized their tweets. I think that, frankly, if Teen Vogue has any integrity, clean the whole house out. Clean them all out and start over. Or bring Alexi back and say, this is how we're going to do it. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I agree with that. Uh, but again, but, the folk, but don't just all of a sudden start locking down your Twitter account uh, because um, you're catching that heat. <laughs> all right, folks, y'all know what time it is. I got you, Well, you never know when you're, what you're going to see on the subway in New York City on this crazy train ride. One white woman decides to go full Karen and tries to stop a black man from reading his Bible aloud. And there are a lot of subway preachers, y'all, in the city. So who knows why this woman had an issue with this dude, but oh, check how the church came alive to rebuke this devil. Waiting and you. Hellfire is waiting and you. Hellfire, don't touch me. Don't touch me. Please don't touch me. Okay, don't touch me. Don't touch me. You are in my space. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. You leave them all the way over there. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. 
Don't touch me. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. I got other folks in here. The Bible says, Your parent of mine is a demon for you. I have already preached everything. church service there, Julian. Amen. You know, amen. Brother Ned had it going on, and this thing, all he should have said is, get thee behind me, Satan, and left it at that. But, uh... Well, Satan was, she was, Satan was standing behind him. <laughs> she surely was. These Karens are just amazing. They are just amazing, and they crack us up, they give us plenty of entertainment, and I'm Grateful that the brother didn't just haul out, haul off and slap the you-know-what out of her, which is probably what I would have done, because uh, she had it coming. But anyway, Brother Ben stayed in his God, and good for him. Uh, I thought that was just too funny, Avis. And how everybody started singing and clapping along with the song. Praise the Lord. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that was hilarious. Now, once again, I'm a little frightened because I ain't seen no mask, but let me let me just say... Uh, you know, he he definitely he definitely knew how to get rid of that you know demonic spirit that was behind him, even though she kept on trying to harass him. But I think when the whole train sort of uh, sort of chimed in <laughs> with with the song, she figured out, okay, I've lost this battle. Let me just kind of slink back over here a little bit. So that was funny. <laughs> Eugene, go ahead. 
Man, look, I agree with Avis. I was like, oh, man, we're, we're the mask guy. the mask here. Um, but um, I do think that uh, the community backing him up on it was uh, probably the highlight of that video. And hopefully she learned her lesson. Oh, my good. I'll wait for Amen. I, 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 I was hoping he was going to lay hands on just he, he should say, yo, somebody got some oil. Just pass me some oil and just 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 lay hands on him. That just 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 just, just hit him with the anointing. Hit him with the anointing. All right, y'all. Uh, Eugene, Avis, uh, Juliana, I totally appreciate it. Thank you so very much. I got to go to break. We come back. We're going to talk about maternal health of black women. And we'll say goodbye. To Hall of Famer. Elgin Baylor, who passed away today at the age of 86, right here on Global Martin Unfiltered. If people begin to believe that their democracy is Are you also playing, if they uh, conclude that voting is a charade, the system is rigged, then God knows what could happen. They rigged an election. They rigged it like they've never rigged an election before. Actually, we do know what could happen. It's happening right now. The U.S. Capitol overrun, under siege. Pro-Trump extremists storming inside, flooding the halls, breaching the floor of the House of Representatives and the Senate. Millions of Americans sincerely believe the last election was fake. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it. We will not go quietly into the night. When thousands of your countrymen storm the Capitol building, if you don't bother to pause and learn a single thing from it, then you're a fool. I know you're pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. We got to this sad, chaotic day for a reason. It is not your fault. It is their fault. I believe that it's movement time again. In America today, the economy is not working for working people. The poor and the needy are being abused. You are the victims of power. And this is the abuse of economic power. I'm 23 years old. I work three jobs. Work seven days a week. No days off. They're paying people pennies on the dollar compared to what they profit. And it is time for this to end. Essential workers have been showing up to work, feeding us, caring for us, delivering goods to us throughout this entire pandemic. And they've been doing it on a measly $7.25 minimum wage. The highest check I ever got was literally $291. I can't take it no more. You know, the fight for 15 is a lot more than about $15 an hour. This is about a fight for your dignity. We have got to recognize that working people deserve livable wages. And it's long past time for this nation to go to 15 so that moms and dads don't have to choose between asthma inhalers and rent. I'm halfway homeless. The main reason that people end up in their cars is because income does not match housing cost. If I could just only work one job, I could have more time with them. It is time for the owners of Walmart, McDonald's, Dollar General, and other large corporations to get off welfare and pay their workers a living wage. And if you really want to tackle racial equity, you have to raise the minimum wage. We're not just fighting for our families, we're fighting for yours too. We need this. I'm going to fight for it until we get it. I'm not going to give up. We just need all workers to sit up as one nation 
and just fight together. Families are relying on these salaries and they must be paid at a minimum $15 an hour. $15 a minimum anyone should be making to be able to stay out of poverty. I can't take it no more. I'm doing this for not only me, but for everybody. We need 15 right now. Hi, my name is Brisha Webb, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Ow. Well, I like a nice filter usually, but we can be unfiltered. Senators Michael Bennett and Cory Booker have introduced the Black Maternal Momnibus Act of 2021 in the United States Senate. The bill would address black maternal health disparities by driving investments into social determinants of health, community health, and health equity data collection. Joining me now to discuss this is uh, Jesse Thompson, nutritionist and founder of the DetoxNow.com. Uh, Charles Johnson, founder for uh, Cure for Moms, and Earl Pierce, senior vice president of state programs for Health First. All right, folks, first and foremost, uh, Jesse, how will this, you know, what will, if this is passed, what will be the impact for mothers? What will it mean for their families? Jesse, go ahead. Okay, I'm so sorry. I thought Charles was going to go in. No, you're first. Oh, okay. I didn't hear you say, Jesse. Um, first of all, thanks for the conversation, Roland. Um, as you know, first of all, Black women, we are um, really, we suffer up to 12 times um, the rate of death in childbirth and postpartum um, and nationally. And when we look at how, you know, in my story, I had many near misses, um, how we are being treated whether it's because of racial inequity, um, because of failure of, of, of health services. Um, the key with this act is really to level the playing field. And, you know, Charles is actually specifically one of the key case stakeholders in this act. So I really would like him to speak on it in terms of, because there's a Kira Johnson Act that's named specifically after his wife and um, to prevent what happened to his wife to happen to mothers all over. Charles? All right. So, Roland, thank you for having me. Um, and so this, Roland, is a monumental piece of legislation. Um, we're not talking about one, not two, not three. We're talking about a dozen bills specifically addressing the unique needs of African-American mothers in this country. Um, and as Jesse stated, African-American mothers are dying in childbirth um, oftentimes five to 12 times as often as their Caucasian counterparts. And so what this will mean is we're addressing everything from the challenges facing incarcerated um, women. We know that there's, uh, uh, even still in 2019, 2020, there's in prisons across our country. We're having forced hysterectomies, extreme instances of, of obstetric violence. We're addressing the social determinants of health, right? We're working towards expanding Medicare and Medicaid to a year postpartum. Right. Um, and then also making investments very importantly. Well, and I want you to understand and your listeners to understand making investments in African-American led community based um, programs. Right. So this we're making sure that resources are getting directly into the communities to the women who are on the front lines serving our communities, catching the babies. We're going to make sure that we have funding. Um, for doula care for women that need it. We're going to make sure that we have midwifery. We're going to make sure that we have the um, specific resources to address the social determinants of health, right? 
Um, because what good is it to have all these programs if a mother has to make the very tough decision between going to work and going to her postpartum appointment, right? So this is a complicated, complex issue. And so we've uh, got a complex, very, very comprehensive package to address the very, very unique challenges facing our community. And this is an important first step, not only for our country to recognize that this is a problem, but to make the necessary investments in turning around. So we talk about, uh, again, when, when Bill gets introduced, obviously, uh, th th uh, then it actually goes through. Um, how will this um, impact beyond just um, mothers who are expecting? So, so really, how comprehensive is this bill? Explain that for the audience. Sure, sure, sure. So that's an excellent question. So... Um, it is important, Rowan, that we're making investments that make sure that mothers and families not only survive but thrive before, during, and after childbirth, right? So we're making sure that we are addressing um, the social determinants on the front and making sure that um, mothers are coming to pregnancy better informed, educated about their options, right, all the options available to them, making sure that they are... Um, having all their needs met from a, um, a prenatal standpoint, um, making sure that there is, when we talk about the birthing process, making sure that there is representation in the birthing workforce, right? That's a critical piece. Um, and then beyond that, making sure that they have the care postpartum, because what we're seeing and what the data is showing is when we see these outrageous numbers of maternal mortality, those, those deaths are being calculated up to a year postpartum. So oftentimes, Many of these complications are going undetected because mother's um, postpartum care is getting cut off um, six weeks to two months after their care. And they're experiencing cardiomyopathy. All types of things are going undetected because they just don't have the care to keep up with them as they, um, you know, go through their, their, particularly through their maternal journey. So we're going to make sure that we have, we address, make sure that they're thriving and they're coming to birth. Um, more informed, more empowered, and healthier, and then making sure that they are protected during and supported after birth. Roland. Uh, uh, Errol? Sure. Yeah. I think this this is a very important legislation because right now what people face is not enough care. We know it uh, disproportionately impacts black and brown mothers. Uh, this, the panel stated, you know, Jesse talked about it, if you filled up a stadium with 100,000 black women, 40 of them, if they became pregnant, would die. It's only 12 for white women. And you might say, well, we need to reduce that disparity so that it's not so much with black women. But even in other countries, they have higher uh, uh, quality, lower mortality rates. Japan, it's only five women. And in countries like um, Spain and Europe, it's lower. So. Fixing this issue for black women will actually fix it for the whole country. And another piece that was brought up was the importance around something we call ethnic concordance. And if we can get more black doctors into the healthcare system, we actually have a bona fide research that shows the outcomes are better. And it's because those black doctors have empathy. One of the big issues that happens in the delivery room is if a black woman says, hey, on a scale from one to 10, my pain is at a 10, I'm excruciating pain. They're not believed. And sometimes they're not believed because there's this implicit bias 
that's endemic in the system that says, well, you know, she's a black woman. Her skin might be tough. She's maybe big bone. She's tough. She's a strong black woman. She's not in pain. And the, the dollars in this bill goes to research so we have more data to uncover these implicit biases. It goes to making sure that people are educated. It goes to making sure that doctors are educated on their implicit bias. There was a study in about a hospital in Philadelphia that found 95% of their residents had a negative bias towards black patients. So imagine you walk into a doctor's room and the doctor already assumes you're not going to listen to them, already assumes education attainment about you, already assumes negative connotations about your diet. How do you think you're going to feel? You're not going to open up. Those, those conversations won't go well, and the health is poor. So we're really looking forward to the outcomes of, of all this, of this legislation because it'll not only have Black women living longer, Black babies living longer, it'll also reduce health care. We spend you know, twice as much as any other country, and we don't get the quality that we deserve. Jesse, go ahead. Um, a key thing that, that Errol just spoke to about the ethnic concordance um, is very important, okay? Um, that's why right now, you know, one of the things we we say to women, listen, the way I like to break it down is listen to your bae, B-A-E, okay? Your body, your advocates, and your experts. Remember, about seven months ago, I had a headache that was so crazy, I went to the doctor, and thank God I found out I actually had an aneurysm. I text you from the hospital, Roland, right? But because I did listen to my body, I was actually able to cover, find something that was going on. And there are so many women who are going through things during, during pregnancy and, and after pregnancy, and they're ignoring their own, um, their own, what their body's telling them because doctors, they feel, are shushing them or rushing them, or they're afraid of, you know, of, of, of being judged, okay? And the other thing is to get your advocates in terms of whether it's the doulas. You know, it's important, as um, Charles spoke to, the fact that doulas would be um, empowered, would be um, hopefully um, services that would be covered, you know, as part of this act, because doulas have an insight for mothers, for black mothers that are not found necessarily at the OBGYN office. Okay. And make sure you have, whether it's the midwife, you know, extra voices, and then your experts that you will be the first expert of your own health. Remember when I text you from the hospital, um, Roland, the, the neurolo neurologist was telling me, neurosurgeon was telling me that I should go home with an aneurysm in my head. But inside, I was like, no, I cannot. Something was telling me, absolutely, I cannot. And I knew if I was not a black woman, would that have been the same, same message I would have been receiving at that time, okay? So we have to know that we have the support and we have to, first of all, call racism out right there if we feel it. That's really important. You know, one of the things that we have been afraid to do is call racism out, but we know it exists. And part of how we have to ensure, we have to work to ensure we're, we're going to have a healthy, whether it's pregnancy or health outcome in general, is specifically naming the, 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 um, the racism and saying, how can racism be playing a part right now? How can it show up in the care that I'm receiving so that we can work with that in mind, because unfortunately, it is something that plays a role. Um, I, I know Errol, Errol can speak to a specific research study that Health First did where they actually had measured results around that. I would love for him to speak to that. Absolutely. So when we talk about social determinants of health, you know, it's talking about 
not just having an insurance card and having a doctor. That's holding 20% of why someone's healthy. 80% of the reason why someone's healthy has nothing to do with just getting to the doctor. You're talking about income. You're talking about education. You're talking about the environment you live in, if there's violence in your community. So what Health First was able to do, partnering with Mount Sinai, a hospital, was actually provide uh, clinical caseworkers to help with postpartum care. Postpartum care is after you have your baby, you have to have follow-up visits. And what we were able to do with those clinical workers that were culturally relevant, they spoke the language, they looked like the people they were taking care of, they were able to break down the barriers to find out what was preventing the mom from getting to the doctor's office. Maybe it was transportation, maybe it was their, their work schedule, maybe it was disposable income. And so they were able to overcome those barriers, and that's what led to higher health. And we're absolutely you know, excited to find out we reduced the disparities. So whether you're a white woman or a black woman, we had the same postpartum results by this uh, intervention. And I think the bill that's coming out will lead to more types of studies and actually making this not just pilots, but this should be standard care in America. Uh, uh, final comment, Charles. Yeah, so I just want to just really, Jesse made a point that was so important, is that I want black women to understand is that it's, Race is not a risk factor. It truly is racism. Because even within these disparities, there are studies that show that African-American women with a graduate and postgraduate degree are dying uh, at rates far more often than Caucasian women living below the poverty line. So it's important that we are empowered, that we are informed, and we are able to advocate for ourselves in these situations. And and so there's a time that the that their the women black women are able to be seen and heard. Um, we have to take this upon ourselves to inform and empower and support our our women when they go into these situations. Jesse, final comment. You are worthy of the care that you need. Please make sure that you have the right team around you, and make sure that if you feel something's wrong that you get the support that you need. Don't let somebody else know cause you to lose your life. All right, folks, thank you so very much. We certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank, thank you, Roman. Thank you so much. Thank you. Elgin Baylor, the Lakers' 11-time NBA All-Star and also Hall of Famer, died today. He was 86, was surrounded by his wife and daughter. Lakers announced that Baylor died of natural causes in Los Angeles. His wife Elaine was there, his daughter Crystal. Baylor joined the NBA in 1958 as the number one draft pick out of Seattle University. He immediately set new records for individual scoring with a 55-point game in his Rookie of the Year season before scoring 64 on November 8, 1959. Then the NBA single-game record and the Lakers record for 45 years until broken by Kobe Bryant. Baylor became the first NBA player to surpass 70 points with a 71-point game December 11, 1960 against New York. 
Will Chamberlain set the record of 100 points in 1962. Baylor averaged 38 points in the 1961-62 season, despite doing active duty as an Army reservist. He scored 61 points in a playoff game against Boston in 1962, a record that will stand for 24 years until broken by Michael Jordan. He averaged 27.4 points and 13.5 rebounds during his 14-year career. He scored a total of 23,149 points in 846 games and was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in May of 1977. Elgin Gay Baylor was born in Washington, D.C. on September 16, 1934. It was named after his father's favorite watch, an Elgin timepiece. Our thoughts and prayers certainly go with his family, all who loved him. Uh, I uh, knew Elgin and his wife, always would see them in the NBA All-Star game, had opportunity uh, for uh, through a dinner party there uh, in, um, uh, in, uh, in Los Angeles, and then their attendance it was always great to see them. The last time we talked to Elgin Baylor, was when he was on this show last year uh, when we, uh, for our Kobe Bryant special, uh, here's some of that. Good at it. And who are the coaches and players and maybe uh, the team executives that he listened to most? You know, I, you know, I don't know because I really wasn't you know, close to Kobe. There's just like seeing him at games where you think, talk and say, watch him practice, say hello. But Kobe was, a, you know, a, a type of, a, just watching him, you know, a couple of times talking to people. I mean, he was a, a really unbelievable competitor, you know. And Kobe believes that, you know, what you have to believe that you can do certain things and probably like his coach wouldn't want him to do certain things. But Kobe would go out there and do the things that he thought that would be beneficial for him, you know, because, and I could understand that because separation, he's a guy that got to make the play, you know, take, take the foul or make the basket. And Kobe would go out there and, you know, would think that, you know, hey, hey, you can't guard me. I'm going to go out there and just do my job. Kevin Merida. Well, just just to have a little fun, Elgin, uh, this, this is Kevin Merida from The Undefeated. Uh, Magic mm -hmm. Johnson said that Kobe was the greatest Laker of all time. I mean, that, and as you know, that the Lakers could have their own Hall of Fame, you know, uh, because there's so many great Lakers. Where, where does Kobe rank to you in the, the kind of Laker pantheon? I don't know. Kobe's been a great player, but I don't know, see, when, when I played, the game was a different game. When I played, you know, like, to be honest, I'd rather play today than I did when I played because the game was such a physical game. They could hand check you. You know, that down, they can't do that. And, and, you know, and by not being able to hand check you, you know, you can do a lot of things that you normally couldn't do, you know, if you have, excuse me, the phone's ringing the other way. But anyway, but I mean, it's like, if you, you know, playing then, you know, guys would hand check you. You have guys that were strong guys, you know, big, good hands, and they can almost direct, guide you and direct you the way they want you to go, position, you know. And uh, so it's different, you know, once you don't have that, you know, you can do the things you want to do. It's a different. It's a different. Uh, it's a different guys are different today than it was when I played. So basically, what you're saying, Elgin, <laughs> I am not gonna say he was the greatest Laker of all time. If you carry further, if, uh, Elgin, if, if if you guys are playing to eleven, one on one, you and Kobe, with with the rules of your era, who's winning that game? If we had to play, what you mean? Me, you, know, you, you and Kobe one on one with the rules of uh, of uh, your era. Who's who's winning that? No, it would be it would be difficult. I mean, it would be difficult. I mean, with the rules that you know they have and the rules they have now. You know, when I play, guys could you know would foul you, give you foul, hold, you know, and everything else. 
No, I know. Well, Kevin is asking, Elgin, if you in your prime and Kobe is in his prime and y'all going one on one, you gonna you could have took him. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they said, oh yeah. See that? See, see that's when oh, you yeah. know you're talking to a great. When it don't matter what the age is. Right. Yeah, I'm gonna take him out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not being cocky or arrogant, but you know you have to believe that. I don't believe right. anybody could check me. You know, I had no problem with anybody guarding me. I like you know, that. That's, that's, that's not what Gus Johnson said. said. What, do you, what do you think about so and so and all that stuff? I said, What do you think about me? I like you that. Know, <laughs> he's not, he's I like that. Me. I'm not worried about him. There you go. <laughs> Elgin Baylor, always man, good talking to you. Tell your wife I said hello. Okay, hey, thanks a lot, guys. I don't believe anybody could check me. Elgin Baylor was indeed one of the greatest NBA players of all time. Rest in peace. Folks, if you want to support what we do here at Roller Martin Unfiltered, please do so by joining our Bring the Funk fan club. Every, do every, every dollar you give goes to support this show. We are transparent, open, and honest about how we spend our resources to make this show the best that we can uh, for you. Uh, and so uh, well, what we want you to do is support us by uh, giving via cash app, dollar sign RM Unfiltered, paypal.me forward slash rmartinunfiltered, venmo.com forward slash rmunfiltered. You can support us via Zelle at Roland at RolandSMartin.com or Roland at RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Uh, and, of course, you can send us a money, money order to uh, New Vision Media, 1625 K Street Northwest, Suite 400, Washington, D.C., 2006. Folks, that is it. I certainly appreciate uh, all of you uh, watching the show, supporting us in what we do. Our goal every day is to bring you the kind of content you're not going to find uh, elsewhere, such as uh, that, that discussion right there with Elgin Baylor. That's why we do what we do. Mainstream media, they won't do what we did with Elgin Baylor, but that's why we have Roland Martin Unfiltered. We're unapologetic, we're uncompromising, we're unfiltered, and we're black-owned. And when you control the product, you control the narrative. See y'all tomorrow. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville. Talladega, the Chicago street course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network.